Welcome to Her Half of History. My name is Lori. The current series is Great Painters, and today's painter is the first American woman in the series. So can I recommend one of my favorite podcasts, The History of American Food? Here's Margaret to tell you about it. Have you ever been frustrated trying to describe just what American food is? And even if you do come up with a definition, are you curious about how it got that way? If so, come along on the journey of the history of American food. I start in the 17th century when it's just a bunch of barrels of ship stores, hardtack, dried peas, salt beef, and sour beer. By following a long road, which has so far taken us to South America, West Africa, the Spice Islands, and the Levant so far, I am working on figuring out how we got from there to things like Korean barbecue tacos, deconstructed cacovin, and molecular gastronomy. So if this interests you, join me on my podcast, The History of American Food. For the food, the chemistry, and history all over everything. So I'll see you over at the History of American Food. Back on my podcast, this is episode 10.10, Mary Cassatt, an Impressionist Painter. My research on Mary left me with more questions than answers. She is a bundle of seeming contradictions. She's championed as one of America's greatest painters, and yet she spent most of her life avoiding America. Her work glorified gentle motherhood, and yet she herself showed not the slightest interest in becoming a mother. She insisted on her femininity, but was furious when her work was judged on its femininity. She lived a lifestyle that appeared rich, but maybe wasn't so very rich. Overall, you just get the sense that Mary Cassatt could be many different things depending on what light you choose to view her in, which I suppose is entirely appropriate for an Impressionist painter. This, then, is maybe not her definitive story, but some impressions of Mary Cassatt. Mary was born on May 22, 1844, in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. She can't have remembered Pittsburgh much because by age seven her family had moved to Europe. Why? Because her father was restless and his modest income stretched farther there. This is not the first time in this podcast we've encountered a move like this, and I gotta say it, I clearly live in the wrong century. Oh, for the days when middle-class people could live in hotels in the great cities of Europe because it was cheaper than staying at home, and no one cared what kind of visa you had. Of course, I recognize that this wasn't true for everyone. But by and large, the people who did this did not recognize that. They thought they were normal. Anyway, the Cassats tripped their way through France and Germany. Mary became fluent in both languages. And then when she was 11, it was back to the U.S., this time to Philadelphia. In 1861, Mary entered the Pennsylvania Academy of Fine Arts. The Academy had girls from the nice families of America, which is to say that these girls had no intention of going pro. They were simply becoming accomplished before reaching the age of marriageability. That is undoubtedly what Robert Cassatt intended for his daughter as well. Later in life, Mary claimed that when she told him her plans to be a professional artist, he said he would rather see her dead. But if you look at the evidence, that's not what his actions say. He allowed her to graduate and then paid for her to go to Paris and study with the masters there. By 1868, she had a painting accepted by the French Salon. It's the mandolin player, and it's beautiful, but not in the style Cassatt would later become famous for. It's not an Impressionist painting. The next few years saw Mary flitting through France, Italy, Spain, Holland, Belgium, basically living my dream, except with a lot more art. 
Oh, and there was a brief and grudging trip to the U.S. when the Franco-Prussian War made it clear Europe was maybe not so stable. She visited Chicago then, just in time to have the Great Fire destroy some of her paintings, so that part's maybe not my dream after all. But you can start to see why some starving artists thought she was rich. By 1873, Mary was almost 30. There was not and never had been any man worth mentioning in her life, other than her father and brothers, I mean. But now she was back in Paris, and she walked by an art shop, and she saw, not a man, but a piece of art. It was La Répétition de Ballet by Edgar Degas, and Mary convinced the friend she had with her to buy it on the spot. This, by the way, would become a trend. Despite her lifestyle, Mary was not especially well off. She was partially dependent on her father, and he was very heavily dependent on debt. You can fairly argue that the ability to convince creditors to let you live on debt is a form of wealth, but the point remains that Mary often didn't have the money to buy the art she liked herself. She had just enough money to have friends with money, and she was very successful in convincing them to spend it on the art she wanted. It's a talent. By the following year, in 1874, Degas was aware of Mary as well. He saw her painting Ida in the French salon and said, There is someone who feels like I do. Now, if this were a Disney movie, a Jane Austen novel, or daytime television, this electrifying, vicarious introduction would be the beginning of a lifelong romance. Or at least a brief torrid love affair. But this was real life, and Victorian real life at that. They certainly never married. There was no evidence of any romantic involvement between them. It is true that neither kept the letters they sent each other, and some historians have assumed that this meant, oh ho, there was something to hide, but I doubt it. From all the surviving evidence, Mary was passionately devoted to art, and only to art. What she wanted from Degas was professional equality and respect. In Victorian times, a woman did not get that by sleeping around. And perhaps not much has changed. Nevertheless, Degas was the man in Mary's life. The same year that he first saw her work, he and Monet and Renoir and Pissarro and several others staged their revolt from what they saw as the oppressive conservatism of the French Salon. They staged their own exhibition and vowed never to submit anything to the Salon again. They called themselves the Anonymous and Independent Cooperative Society of Painters, Sculptors, and Engravers, which is certainly a mouthful, and it proves that while they were visually brilliant, verbally, they needed some work. To their horror, their branding problem was solved not by a PR or a marketing firm, but by a critic. Louis Leroy wrote a scathing and satirical report of their first exhibition, in which he said, among other things, that when he got to Monet's painting called Impression Sunrise, he said to himself, Impression? I was certain of it. I was just telling myself that, since I was impressed, there had to be some impression in it. And what freedom! What ease of workmanship! A preliminary drawing for a wallpaper pattern is more finished than this seascape. So, Impressionists they became, and they were never able to live down the name. It just goes to show that, as has been said before, the only way to achieve immortality as a critic is to say the wrong thing about the right people. But Mary was not yet part of the right people. In 1875, the Salon rejected her painting, The Young Bride, because it was too bright. She should tone it down. In 1876, she toned it down and they accepted it, but she never forgave them. In 1877, she met Degas in person and he invited her to join the group that he was still trying to call the Independents. 
Mary said yes and never looked back. She later said of that meeting, I had already recognized who were my true masters. I admired Manet, Courbet, and Degas. I hated conventional art. I began to live. In 1879, Mary contributed In the Loge to the Fourth Impressionist Exhibition. It made her name as one of them. It is also an interesting commentary, though commentary of what is for you to decide. The picture shows a well-dressed young lady in a box at a theater. She is looking through her opera glasses, and you could assume that she's looking at the stage because that's why people come to the theater, right? Except her glasses aren't tilted down to the stage. No, they go straight across, as if what really has her interest is someone sitting in the boxes opposite from her. Meanwhile, one of the figures in the background is a man with his opera glasses clearly trained on her. In other words, no one's really here for the play. Meanwhile, she and Degas were working in each other's studios. She sometimes modeled for him. He did the background on one of hers. Each promoted the other's work and offered critiques. Neither of them was famous for tact or gentleness, so it wasn't always super kind, but it was always productive. It was not a student-teacher relationship, as has sometimes been reported. It was a true working partnership. It was Degas who suggested a theme Mary would continue to explore for the rest of her life, that of maternity and children. It was a subject artists had done for centuries, but traditionally, only religiously, Madonna and child paintings were everywhere, and more recently, sometimes through portraiture, think Elizabeth Vigée Lebrun, who I talked about a couple weeks ago, but what about other mothers, general mothers, not portraits, but just paintings of motherhood? In 1880, Mary did The Goodnight Hug. It's not actually a painting, but a pastel drawing. It was the first of many works of mothers and children, and the question is, why did she do so many? The simplest answer is that she needed a way to distinguish herself from other Impressionists. Degas did ballerinas and horses. Monet did water lilies and haystacks and cathedrals. Cassatt did mothers and children. But there are other possible explanations. One interesting one is that painting small children was Mary's only respectable access to doing a nude painting, which for so long was a required component of the serious art world, and yet women were generally excluded from the classes on it. Many of her babies are nude, which was not unusual in a world without disposable diapers. Everyone understood that, so no problem. Another theory is that she did it to subvert criticism. She herself was not a shining example of Victorian womanhood. She was pursuing a career, not a family. But by making her career focus on the glory of woman's role in the family, who could really complain? Well, I'll tell you who can complain. It's the more modern feminists. They have criticized Mary for feeding into the feminine stereotypes at a time when large numbers of real mothers were abandoning their children to state-run orphanages because they could not feed them. At a time when sexual assault was common and mostly unpunished. At a time when women faced political, educational, financial, and professional discrimination at pretty much every level. Think Les Miserables here and the plight of Fantine, the unwed mother in poverty. That book had been written by this point, but the problems it pointed out were and are, a long way from salt. What right had Mary, this feminist argument goes, to portray contented motherhood so smugly? To paint, as a reviewer in 1893 said, only women with quiet souls. And then there's the backlash to that argument, saying that Mary's work was actually radically feminist, 
showing as it did the actual work involved in caring for a child and valuing that work for crying out loud. Is it not the epitome of sexism to say that the work these middle-class women genuinely did do was not worthy of depiction? As I say, plenty of contradictory impressions of Mary are here, and when seen in different lights, all of them may be true. The theory that Mary herself most disliked was that only a woman could have painted these mothers and children. And I have to say, I agree with her on that point. If we are going to insist that women can paint as well as men, then we must also allow that men can paint as well as women. If men had never been mothers, well, neither had Mary. What they had been, and she was too, was a child with a mother. So yes, they could have explored this subject in paint. They just generally hadn't bothered. Speaking of men and their paintings, things were becoming difficult with Degas. Their friendship floundered over politics. Also his misogyny. He made a comment that no woman could understand style. Mary painted Girl Arranging Her Hair to prove him wrong, and he was so impressed that he displayed it prominently in his own home. But still, the comment rankled. I myself am fully aware that I do not understand style, and especially I do not understand how this painting, as opposed to all the others, proves that Mary did. So if you know, get in touch. I really haven't got a clue. Mary, like many artists of the period, was deeply impressed by the flood of Japanese art that the West had only recently learned about. They were now looking at the startling effects of works like The Great Wave, which I talked about last week. All the Impressionists were affected. In Mary's work, you can see it in some of her prints, which, like Japanese ukiyo-e, feature large areas of flat color contrasted with decorative patterns on clothes, plus vibrant colors, simplified figures, and asymmetric compositions. Those features are most obviously present in her 1894 painting, The Boating Party, which shows the back of a man rowing while a woman and child sit on the far end of the boat. It is at once very Mary Cassatt in subject matter, and also a distinctly Japanese angle and orientation to choose. After the mid-1880s, Mary did less with Degas, but her reputation had grown elsewhere. In the 1890s, she was commissioned to paint large murals for the Women's Building at the Chicago World's Fair the very same fair and building that exhibited the young Uemura Shoen, who I talked about last week. Mary accepted her World's Fair commission with reluctance and much backsliding. Disputes over pay and whether America truly appreciated women artists and other issues came and went. Her murals showed women pursuing knowledge, art, and fame, and they were a critical failure, by and large. Some people liked them, but in most reviews, everything from her choice of color palette to the height at which they were hung to the very subject matter was criticized. Even a male friend of Mary's asked her, then this is woman apart from her relations to man? As if he couldn't quite grasp that concept. Yes, Mary said flatly. Men, I have no doubt, are painted in all their vigor on the walls of the other buildings at the fair. And in this, she was quite right. But at the same time, she did not want the murals to be thought of as women somehow adopting masculinity. No, she continued, to us the sweetness of childhood, the charm of womanhood. If I have not conveyed some sense of that charm, in one word, if I have not been absolutely feminine, then I have failed. Sweetness and charm are not really words that some of the more brash feminists wanted to embrace, hence the criticism from the other side of the women's rights movement. Sometimes you just can't win. By the early 20th century, Mary had purchased a French chateau called Beaufren, where she grew over 1,000 roses. Sounds pretty rich, doesn't it? 
And yet, at least one of my sources assures me that a chateau just meant a substantial country house, not really a castle. Still sounds rich to me, but I'm assured that she was not. She was still painting, still drawing, but also doing a great deal of advising of collectors. It is because of her efforts that there are so many French Impressionists in the collection of the New York Metropolitan Museum of Art. In 1904, France granted her the Legion of Honor, which was pretty much proof that Impressionism was no longer fringe radicalism. But amid all these victories, a long life began to take its toll. She lost family members and was diagnosed with diabetes. She was treated with radium, which was not yet understood to be poisonous. Despite cataract surgery, she began to go blind. In 1917, Degas died, and despite their regular arguments and his own quite terrible health conditions, Mary wrote, Degas died at midnight, not knowing his state. His death is a great deliverance, but I am sad. He was my oldest friend here, and the last great artist of the 19th century. I see no one here to replace him. In that last statement, Mary was quite wrong, for Picasso had already come to Paris, and had already painted some of his most famous work. But it is perhaps unsurprising that Mary, now in her seventies, failed to appreciate the next great revolution in art, just as the French Salon had failed to recognize hers. The Impressionists had succeeded so well, they had become the establishment. Mary died at her home in 1926. Today, her work can be seen on the walls of museums all over the world. My major source for today was Nancy Hale's biography, Mary Cassatt. You can see all the other sources, plus a transcript and an incredible number of mothers and babies, plus a few other things, on my website at herhalfofhistory.com. While there, you can add a comment that tells me whether you think Mary was a rabid feminist or a panderer to all things oppressively Victorian. Should she even count as American, or is she more French? You can also share your wisdom on that on Twitter at her underscore half, where I am most active, or on Facebook or Instagram at her half of history, where I am somewhat less active, but still breathing most of the time. Next week, we emerge from one art revolution to another. Not Picasso, obviously, wrong gender, but the inventor of the abstract, who is not a man, but a woman from Sweden, Hilma Afklint. Thanks. Welcome to Anthology of Heroes, the podcast that explores the most pivotal moments of history through the eyes of those who lived it. In this podcast, we don't spend our time recounting facts and dates. Instead, we follow in the footsteps of national heroes, kings, or ordinary people who lived and breathed the moments that shaped our world. We're not hemmed in by eras, borders, or religions. Instead, we seek out the tales of those who defied the odds and fought passionately for their beliefs. Whether they're right or wrong is up to you to decide. From Vercingetorix's doomed rebellion against Rome, to Osceola's unshakable war against the USA, all the way up to the inspiring Sobibor concentration camp uprising in World War II, each episode is an immersive listening experience, blending music and sound effects to really draw you into the story. Our episodes go for about 45 minutes, making them perfect for your commute, and are crafted using a wealth of historical sources which I list on our website if you want to learn more. I'm the host, Elliot Gates, and I'm thrilled to have you joining me as we uncover history's hidden gems and illuminate the faded pages of our past. Look out for the Anthology of Heroes podcast on Spotify, Apple Music, or anywhere else you get your podcasts from.
Around 10,000 BCE, families and tribes of the ancestors to the people of Britain would arrive in the southern part of the island after crossing from land that bridged from Europe. The Welsh built houses, communities, kingdoms, and continued to survive through Romans, Saxons, Danes, and Normans. The language and culture influenced by these sources continued to change and thrive, becoming ancient and modern at the same time. Join me as we travel through the history, meeting the kings, queens, nobles, and everyday people that create and grew modern Wales from the seeds of the ancient past. Creoso, and welcome to the Welsh History Podcast.